0: Previously, we were speaking with Dr. Gassim Thirmizi and Shah Raza about the colonial era in what is now Pakistan, and specifically Punjab and the Northwest Frontier Province or Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, and how agrarian change during this time sparked different kinds of resistance and peasant movements. Part of this, part of discussing peasant movements, is also trying to understand how resistance from the subordinated classes shaped The kinds of conversations that were part of decolonization. Conversations around land reform or getting rid of the privileges of landed elites. But then there's also questions about how a post-colonial Pakistan was going to address problems in the agrarian economy, including what appeared to the ruling elites to be food crises and possible food shortages, which is obviously not a good thing for political stability or economic stability. Now, how the ruling elites the post-colonial ruling elites, intervened in the agrarian economy in the 1950s and 1960s, again reshaped class relations and sparked new rounds of peasant resistance and radical political movements, which is what we're going to discuss today. Now, speaking of that, there is one detail we don't address in our discussion, but I'd like you to keep in mind. A lot of people think that peasant militancy in the 1970s was sparked by Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who was the leader of the Pakistan People's Party, and who came to power in, well, he was elected in 1970 for West Pakistan, but came to power in 1972 as the, as the president. And then in 1973, with a new constitution became prime minister. Now, Bhutto had a kind of a socialist platform, or at least it was nominally socialist, it's something we'll discuss. And he passed land reform measures in 1972. And the story goes that that gave confidence to the peasantry to try and demand many of the things around land and tenancy reforms that they wanted. There's certainly a lot of truth to that. But as we discuss, the peasant movements had started prior to Mr. Bhutto coming to power. In other words, Bhutto's coming to power was itself a consequence of the movements of workers, students, and peasants. And the land reform measures of 1972 were a response to the already increasing militancy of the peasants that had to be accommodated. So the point is that peasant movements impacted law, they impacted legal measures, they impacted political economy, and they also impacted what politicians had to say or thought they had to say in order to get elected, especially around the time of the 1970s. So as you see, all three of us agree on this point that we really have to be attuned to how working classes and peasant classes shape history in general, and specifically how they've shaped history in Pakistan. Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we discuss the relationship between politics and economics, the relation between power, production, and a bunch of other stuff. I am your host, Numan Ali, Assistant Professor of Political Economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. So let's get back to the conversation with Dr. Qasem Tirmizi and Shah Zabraza and turn to decolonization and agrarian change in post colonial Pakistan. Dr. Qasem Tirmizi is a postdoctoral fellow at the Global Development Studies Department at Queen's University in Canada, and Shah Zabraza is a PhD researcher in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Toronto, also in Canada. So, we've been talking about the colonial period and how agrarian change in the colonial period sparked different kinds of resistance and peasant movements and i'm now interested in moving to the kind of the post-colonial period and and right off the bat kasem you had mentioned that around the period of partition itself there was severe crisis and severe uh movements also around this maybe you can expand a little bit on that i mean it's kind of obvious why partition would create a crisis but in case it isn't, we could maybe spell it out.
1: I mean, one thing which uh, which becomes quite interesting, which I'm finding quite interesting to look at, in the 1940s before partition happens, uh, obviously for people who were politically organizing, it wasn't obvious that Pakistan uh, and the India that we see today would be the outcome of that, you know, or that even partition would happen or independence would happen. Uh, I mean, the demand for Pakistan itself as a territorial entity only comes in 1940, uh, before Muslims were making political demands in different ways, as making it as a calm or let's say, as Muslims making demands on what, uh, and also let's a regional uh, power and distribution. Uh, and one thing, you know, at one point, the Communist Party of India, they start making demands of uh, of supporting Uh, Muslim demands for uh, self-determination. I mean, they are doing this uh, once the Muslim League and the Unionist Party make their own divisions. Uh, At one point, the Unionist Party, which was a party of landlords, uh, Muslim and Hindu uh, and Sikh landlords in Punjab, uh, so they divide with the the Muslim League and so the Communist Party sees an opening and sees it self-determination, there's like, maybe at this point there's like this kind of idea that we know we should respect self-determination of different nations and Muslims are a nation and they also think that they could, if they do this, they could infiltrate and you know, infuse the Muslim League with communist ideas. Mm. Uh, So there's uh, this is happening at the one side. At the same time, there are those in the Unionist Party landlords who are seeing that, like, Muslim landlords specifically, are seeing that there's something inevitable about decolonization. That, you know, decolonization's up on the horizon. And, and if we don't get with the times, then we're going to be lost out. And the Unionist Party itself is a party which is pro-British. Uh, you know, it's for, uh, it. they get their, their ability to give patronage to their members through their alliance with the British. And so if the British are no longer there, then that party can no longer exist. I mean, they would have to really transform themselves. And one way in which you could say that they transformed themselves is that they left the party. And so many landlords abandoned the party, and Muslim landlords, and they went to the Muslim League and seeing the hopes that, you know, here's a party which doesn't have a clear ideological stance on Uh, agrarian politics or like say land redistribution which uh, sections of the Congress party did have you know Mm. questions about land reform and so there was possibilities of shaping this because the, the demand for Pakistan was a bit empty I mean you would have to fill it with content I mean making a territorial demand for Muslims doesn't say much about your specificities about your politics in terms of class about economics uh, and so there was some positive. So you know, you can see at the one side you know, the Communist Party is trying to infiltrate them. There's also large landowners which are entering the party, uh, and you know, there's a very progressive manifesto which is made by the Muslim League uh, through the involvement of communists uh, in 1944, which talk about uh, land redistribution, the rights of peasants, uh, and whatnot. So. There are these overtures. There is, uh, you could say, maybe the Muslim League also using the communists as a way to create a base among a rural population where they previously were very much urban. Uh, but and then what you start also seeing is that uh, you know there's different moments where let's say the Punjab Kisan Party, the Punjab Kisan Committee, which is uh, associated with the Communist Party, and they are organizing uh, uh, peasants and. There are different moments where there are these tenant struggles, which kind of reveal the contradictions of the Muslim League and saying, what is the class character of the Muslim League? So mm. uh, in Multan, for example, you have a, uh, a tenant struggle where you see that the, the landlord is a Muslim with, associated with the Muslim League. Uh, And he's calling for, uh, you know, the Muslim tenants to obey him. And uh, but there's also this kind of sense that, you know, his allegiance is not so much towards Muslims, uh, but more towards landlordism. Uh, And so there's this kind of sense that the progressive character that the Muslim League is touting of like uh, agreeing to a a progressive uh, manifesto isn't really being fulfilled in its content. Because, I mean, so for me, I see, let's say, Muslim League at this period as a site of struggle. There is, let's say, the the attempt to make it uh, anti-imperialist through the communists. But there's also the attempt to, for landlords to give it a character which is pro-landlord and pro-imperialist. The ultimate character which wins out is that of uh, the pro-imperialist, pro-landlord character of the Muslim League. And... So you still, in you know, the 19, you know, 1945, 1946, 47, you start seeing tenant struggles, which uh, at least the communists are saying that they include, uh, Muslims and Hindus, uh, tenants, uh, in, you know, in places like Multan, in Munka, in Sahiwad. Uh, so it, there might have been a large participation of Hindus, but uh, at least uh, in, in the newsletters of communists in this period, they're mentioning that there is the inclusion of the participation of Muslims.
0: Cool. So there's actually communists organizing in in Multan and Sahiwal at that time.
1: Yeah, and tenant organizing, not just like urban organizing, but that there is uh, in Sahiwal and even in I think in the railways in the in some of the factories in uh, in uh, uh where, i mean, there there where was uh, amp organizing oh, Okara, oh, okaras Okara. so in okaras right. there's also organizing but that's yeah right. so in montgomery and multan there was uh, tenant struggles uh, in like 46 and 47
0: that's fascinating because usually we don't think of uh, communists in pakistan, in west pakistan right because around this time in the 1945 46 the communists are leading peasant struggles in bengal the Tebhaga struggle and in um in Hyderabad, the princely state of Hyderabad, the Telangana struggle, uh, which by the you know I take every opportunity to tell people that I'm from Telangana, um, but it was actually my family was uh, was basically of landlords, so they were the ones who were getting fought at by the communists, and that's a different story. Um, although the interesting part is I spoke to my grand uncle, uh, right, and who's a landlord, uh, and he said, "Look, we deserved it, man. We were so bad to the tenants. We the, they were so poor." That whatever the communists did, they organized the tenants and they fought us. They de- we deserved it. They had every right to do that. So it was a, it was a really funny uh, and interesting period because that's you know an honest landlord who's like, yeah, we were jerks. Um, but so generally, yeah, we have these ideas of these great grand peasant struggles in India, uh, but we don't necessarily associate that kind of tenant organizing, specifically communist organizing, um, with West Pakistan. And that's actually where I, I also wanted to make this kind of. Uh, intervention, again, going back to Charsadda, where right after independence, uh, there's a lot of upheaval, there's a problem of, even though we're talking about NWFP, there are maybe tens of thousands of refugees from India being resettled here. Uh, I know that the the displacement is probably far greater in in Punjab. It's not probably, it certainly is far greater in, in Punjab. We have talking about millions of people going from here to there. But even in NWFP, there, there's already uh, pressure on the land. There's refugees being resettled. The newly post-colonial state of Pakistan needs revenues. And a great way to get those revenues is from land. And as you said, Qasem, uh, when, when the pressure on the landlord increases, they pass that pressure on to the tenants. And so there's moments where uh, landlords are also saying, you know, if we kick off our existing tenants from the land and we give the land to these refugees they will work for less they will they will give us more so there's this all kind of this upheaval going on in in post colonial nwfp and interestingly there, there's a communist party unit there which leads uh, an armed struggle in 1948 against the new, new muslim league government in that area now the, the politics is a lot more complicated cuz originally there was a congress government the muslim league kicked them out of of power and and took over the province themselves um but yeah, the, in this area that we now know as Hashnagar, um, or they knew it as Hashnagar as well, that's part of Charsadda, uh, the Communist Party of Pakistan, newly minted Communist Party of Pakistan, which was just formed in February 1948. They start leading a struggle in, in May of 1948, an armed struggle to occupy the land. Uh, you know, it starts with like, let's not, let's pay smaller rent. Then it goes to let's pay no rent. Then it gets goes to land to the tiller, like they. But they, they maybe uh, push too far, too hard, because the Muslim League government cracked down very violently, and uh, and uh, uh, you know machine gunned tenants and marched them around naked. In, in some ways, so a lot of tenants were very very upset with the communists for for being adventurous in that in in that way. Um, and ultimately, they go back to to many of them went back to to and, and stuff like that. So there's a very interesting episode that uh, that is part of Pakistan's partition and independence that kind of gets swept under under the rug. And I'm wondering if there's other stuff like that going on uh, in other parts of uh, Punjab or other parts of Pakistan, uh, as we now know it, West Pakistan, where you have following independence and partition, uh, uh, tenant struggles or peasant struggles around land or rent and stuff like that.
1: Uh, I mean, one thing which is interesting is that uh, in mid-July of 1947, I mean, before you had the Communist Party of Pakistan uh, formed in 1948, you did have the formation, let's say one month before formally that the, the Pakistan was created, you had the formation of the Pakistan Communist Party. So this is confusing. That, so this is different from the Communist Party of Pakistan, which would become formed in 1948. And so what this is interesting is that you know, this is a moment where you had uh, this is a breakaway group from the Communist Party of India. And this included uh, people whose families were Hindus and Muslims uh, who were communists. And they had the hope that uh, there would be a different type of Pakistan. And so then they were thinking, you know, okay, Pakistan's now inevitable, but what content should we give this Pakistan? And they have a manifesto which included. Uh, a call for a free democratic Pakistani state uh, They also say to save the Pakistan state from falling a uh, prey to British and American imperialism And to save it from becoming a military base directed against eastern countries struggling for their independence To put an end to the Jagadari system Uh to fight for uh, universal suffrage to create so this is you know, I'm reading from this uh, to create confidence among Hindus, Sikhs, and Muslims living in Pakistan, uh, to protect the mi- rights of minorities, to fight for the emancipation of the working class. So I mean, it's, this movement—it its very short-lived. The Sikh communists that stayed on in West Pakistan for a few months—they realized that it was very difficult to stay on, and so they moved back to to uh, so they moved to Eastern Punjab, what, is, mm. what became India. But what was interesting is that there's this imagination that, you know, a multi-religious Pakistan is possible, which is part of, you know, the communist politics that were existing, you know, prior to partition, that there was a possibility of having this multi-ethnic, multi-religious political formation that we're not defined, our subjectivities are not just defined by our singular religious identity, but that there's a possibility. But there's also this kind of the, the idea of, Uh, land redistribution, also the idea that Pakistan, I guess there was this thing, analysis that Pakistan, even if the British, if British imperialism goes away, there's the possibility and American imperialism is on uh, in the horizons. And so there was amongst, you know, uh, Muslims and Hindu and Sikh communists that another Pakistan was possible. And so something like Pakistan wasn't something which was inevitable or something which we can take for granted. But there was people who were trying to give it different shape. Uh, so that's, I think, for me, it's something quite interesting uh, about to think through. Like, we often just think, okay, there was this Pakistan which was created. It was made by the Muslim League, and that's what we have today. Right, right. There's a lot of,
0: yeah. There's there's definitely a lot of different kinds of things um, going on, and and I think it's important to recover that history. And I'm very glad you. I've heard of the Pakistan Communist Party, but I've never. Uh, realize that you could even grab I, I, I'm amazed to see that you've, you've found their documents and stuff like that. I'm very happy to see that. Um, I want to try and fast forward a little bit, maybe not too much, but a little bit into the 1950s um, because there's a flood in Pakistan, in West Pakistan in the 1950s uh, and there's more food crisis. There's a severe crisis of uh, the wheat crop doesn't come around and Pakistan is at the uh risk of going into a famine situation and then they require US aid and according to Hamza Ali, this is actually one of the main things that even turns pakistan toward the uh, the US if i'm if i'm remembering correctly um the thing that happens with the 1950s and there is a crisis around food there is a need to import food and it's not just pakistan other parts of the third world or global south and decolonized countries are also looking at this um and I think it's at this point that there's kind of two solutions on the, on the horizon, right? We, we talk about this in terms of, A, the Red Revolution, which is saying, let's redistribute the land from these giant landlords to the peasants. Uh, ideally, that will increase productivity. Then let's do what the Soviet Union is doing or China is doing, which is collectivizing agriculture. And we now know that there were problems with the, the collectivization of agriculture, but still, according to depending on who you talk to, in retrospect, they still did stabilize agriculture, they did increase production, maybe not as much as they could have, um, or should have. But they appeared at that time to be ways to actually um, establish a peasant-based economy uh, that could very rapidly lead you to industrialization and food security, which it did, you know, regardless of the famines in Soviet Union and China, after that, they were incredibly food secure. Um, to the point that Amartya Sen and Jean Dre said that more people die in India from normal hunger than died in China during the time of their famine. And I think that's that's really humbling and something to think think about. Um, but in any case, that was one option that was on the table in the 50s. Um, the Communist Party of Pakistan was banned by 1954 because of the Rawal Pindi conspiracy case in 1951. But in East Pakistan, because of Maulana Bhashani, uh, uh, who... Our, our, our colleague, uh, Lelyuddin, talks about um, a lot. She's studying uh, Maulana Bhashani in, in in depth and is producing a lot of very interesting material about that. Uh, but Maulana Bashani was extremely popular with the peasants of East Pakistan. And, and oftentimes we, we, we might get lost in just looking at West Pakistan and forgetting that East Pakistan dynamics were also propelling the ruling classes of, of Pakistan. Um, so there was a lot of uh, crisis and peasants were, were quite... Um, Um, rebellious in some ways, especially in East Pakistan, and and Pashani was their spokesperson. And so there there was this possibility of a Red Revolution, maybe not a very strong possibility, but certainly uh, a threat to the ruling uh, uh, elites. And on the other hand, the solution that was ultimately found was that of the Green Revolution. That through the 1960s, in different parts of the world included, you know, Mexico was a research place, but then there was a pack variety of a new seed, new grain seeds, new wheat seeds, which um, were supposed to be far more productive. The thing is those seeds also required more chemical fertilizer and far more use of water, but they did increase productivity uh, on the existing kind of relations of land. So the idea is, look, we can produce our own food. We don't have to import this food. We will be food secure. And we don't have to redistribute the land either. That said, in Pakistan, we know that in 1959, the Ayub Khan Marshall law government did try to pass land reforms. Uh, we also know that they were mostly ineffective. That said, they put the fear of God into landlords. Landlords were like, okay, we're not really giving up much land, but the threat is there. The threat is there that any kind of... You know, even though Ayub Khan is supposed to be uh, a conservative in that sense, he's very capitalistic. He's not socialist minded at all. He's very anti-socialist, in fact. But he's still putting forward land reforms on the agenda because that is the the demand of the moment. It's happening throughout the third world. They don't get implemented to any satisfactory level in Pakistan, um, but that does put a threat into landlords. And then late in the in the late 1960s, you have the green revolution technologies kicking in, really. Um, with the new seed, the chemical fertilizer. And at least, uh, you know, I I can speak to what happens in Jarsadda and and maybe Shahzab, you can speak to a little bit what happens in South Punjab. In Jarsadda, what this leads to is that a lot of landlords who had rented out their lands to these tenants, these, you know, we described the moment peasantry, which about 60, 20 years ago, sorry, was trying an armed uh, revolution with the communists. The landlords start kicking these people off of the lands. There's a lot of dispossession and displacement because uh, the landlords are now saying we can take over our own land, we can farm it with these new tractors, which we can afford, these machines, and we can implement these green revolution technologies and raise our own yields and productivity far, far greater. And in any case, we don't want these kind of tenants around because they, they can be really problematic for us. So they kick a lot of them off of the land starting in the late 1960s. But as it is, uh, the communists... Happened to be there, even though the Communist Party of Pakistan was banned in 1954. They were released from jails, and in about 1962, 1963, and some of those old communists then go around and start organizing, not openly, but under the National Awami Party banner. They ally with Rafar Khan, Bacha Khan, uh, or at least his son Wali Khan, uh, and with Molana Bashani. They form the National Awami Party, and they're organizing in this area of Hashnigir, Uh, And as these tenants are getting kicked off of their lands or other tenants are under threat of getting kicked off of the land. This is late 1960s. The only kind of organized force that they find who is willing to to represent them, it's not not the mainstream National Awami Party, because Bacha uh, sorry, not Bacha Khan, but Wali Khan is a Khan at the end of the day. He has land. He has interest in land. And a lot of the the people in his party are also landlords. And so the tenants are like, okay, National Awami Party won't represent us. There's this new party that's coming into being. It's called the Pakistan People's Party, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, but it has very little presence in NWFP. Uh, the only people on the ground is this formation that is kicked out of the National Awami Party called the Mazdoor Kassan Party. They're the only people around. There's Afzal Bangash, there's Sherly Bacha, important leaders. So all of these tenants, over the course of maybe 1969, they join the Mazdoor Kassan Party. And through the Mazur-Kasan party, they organize a rebellion in 1970, where they're like, we're not going to pay rent. Uh, actually, they start by saying, please reduce the rents, uh, please, uh, you know, reduce the rents, uh, that is not accepted. So then they say, okay, we're not going to pay rents. And of course, the landlords start fighting them. So then they just say, okay, that's it. We're not going to give up this land. Whoever has land gets to keep the land. So there's a land to the tiller movement that takes off in 1970, uh, and it's an armed struggle, and it's massive. It spreads throughout the Northwest uh, from, from Hashnagar area in Charsadda. It goes to Mardan. It goes to Swat. It goes to Dir, It even goes a little bit into in, uh, west. So it's it's this massive peasant uh, movement. Um, and that's going on from about 1970 to 1973. You know, why it comes to an end, We can we can maybe discuss that. But it's really interesting to see again the lineage that we're talking about. Uh, that these communists, the Communist Party uh, of Pakistan, they they came from the Congress Socialist Party in some ways. They came from Ghadar, They were inspired by Abdurrahim Rahim Popalzai and Sanobar, but they're still around. They they're not. They don't really go away as such. And so in the 1960s, they formed the Kassan Committees in these areas, and then in 1968, they formed the Mazdur Kasan Party, uh, and they lead this massive tenant struggle and. A lot of tenants prevent uh, evictions. They prevent dispossession and displacement. They hold on to their lands for from 1970 to 1973. They're not paying rent to the landlords, so they accumulate a lot of capital. Right? They improve their livelihoods, and, and it's just this very fascinating part of Pakistani history. Now, the thing is, the MKP is also organizing in the other parts of Punjab, and, and I think that's where where Shazib, you you're doing uh, you come in, and and maybe you can tell us about what kind of effects. Green Revolution plus different political dynamics have in South Punjab?
2: So in the 60s, uh, with the Green Revolution and you know Ayub's 1959 land reforms, the landlords in South Punjab did actually, at least Ayub's, hand over some of their land. But um, a couple of things about this, though. So they did hand over a bit of land, but it still meant you know, they had thousands and thousands of acres and now they had tens of thousands. Like, um, so in fact, more land was handed over during Ayub's land reform than during Bhutto's in 1972. The thing was, though, in the Ayub era land reform, a lot of the land, some of it went to landless te- tenants, but a lot of it went to kind of civil military bureaucrats who came from outside who were allies with the Ayub regime. And in fact, one early struggle, in South Punjab in the 60s happened over this where um, you know, one of the Lagadis gave over the land, but it went to one of Ayub's um, allies who came from outside and took over the land. And, and the tenants there were like, what, we've been tilling this land for generations. Why don't we, we should have uh, a right to this land. Um, and in fact, then at that time, you know, some of the tenants I spoke to there mentioned meeting some of the muzdur Kassan party people who had put out some feelers and, you know, got in touch with them. Hmm. But there was no sustained thing that happened in the 60s. And that kind of, those tenants never got the land. They got transferred to this Pratan, who was like some bureaucrat, and he became the landlord. But then in the 70s was when, and around 70, 71, 72 in particular, that um, in South Punjab, at least, we see a lot of wave of, of evictions. And people are... In the context especially of Bhutto's um, 1972 land reform. That in particular worries a lot of the landlords there, especially because Bhutto was using, Bhutto himself didn't really necessarily care about the peasants, but he used the land reforms as a way to target his political opponents. Him and his ally, Gulam Mustafa Kar, at the time who became uh, the Punjab kind of chief minister, used it to like any, and at the time in the 1970s, a lot of the Lagaris, the Mazaris, a lot of the big chiefly families in South Punjab and this part of South Punjab were opposed to the Bhutto regime. And he used that to undermine it. Um, um, and so they were scared. A lot of the landlords, tenants, there was tenant initially, and there was a the tenant movement in South Punjab had kind of two phases. Um, in the beginning, before the NKP came, there was just kind of what we would call spontaneous kind of uprising. Mean, it wasn't spontaneous. There was organizations there, but it wasn't, you know, there was no party support. And it was really about um, stopping the evictions. You know, we just want to keep, don't evict us. Because landlords were evicting them, fearing that they would, um, you know, occupy land and not give anything. At that, In the first phase, the tenants simply demanded that they wanted to, you know, stay on the land and not be evicted. Then, um, slowly the MKP started making kind of entries into South Punjab, and you see a radicalization of the demands of the the tenants, where now they're not simply asking that we want to keep on the land as tenants, but we actually want to be owners of the land. We want to no longer give you any rent entirely. Um, And initially, I mean, do you want to talk about the outcomes? Or should I just?
0: Yeah, sure, sure. Let's, Let's go into that.
2: Yeah, but um, initially they're able to kind of, and yeah, so their demands are, you know, land to the tiller, ending owning, you know, no more begar, begar as Anuman mentioned earlier, was a big kind of thing that was present in South Punjab, ending that, we don't want to give you any rent at all, this is our land, we've been cultivating it for um, generations. Um, and they were supported by the party, and the party enabled them to have that kind of, you know, put forward that radical demand and there was a wave of tenant occupations of the land. Except when you say kabza, they don't think they push back, speaking to the peasants who did this, they don't say it's kabza because kabza implies some lack of entitlement to that land, where they felt mm. that they had been entitled to that land. And in fact, at the same at the at that time one of the key organizers who was part of the NKP and who was a local organizer, Sibwatullah, he was m- making the argument that um, drawing on Islamic sources to say that you know there was a saying from the Prophet Muhammad that someone who tilled the land rightfully owned the land. And so they were making make- this claim to land in the tiller, many of the tenants, in you know, Islamic idioms. And so Qabza wasn't what they were doing. It was in fact claiming something that was rightfully theirs, Islamically theirs. Um,
0: yeah. yeah, you have similar dynamics in uh, in Hashnagar as well, where um Interestingly, the, the these you know these peasant movements are fighting these battles with the Khans, and the people would say, if you are if you're, there go the Kafirs to fight the Muslims, right? So the Muslims are the landlords and the Kafirs are the tenants. But for the tenants, when you speak to them, they're like, no, look, God did not give this land to the landlords. Uh, the British gave them this land. So this isn't a question of faith. This is a question of of entitlement and right according to who has done the labor, like. These were uncultivated lands. We came from Moment Agency. We're the ones who brought them into cultivation. We're the ones who've been farming them for like, you know, 70 years, 60 years. We have a right to this land. And it's not a question of, um, of faith that these people are making it out to be. So that's a, that's a fascinating um, parallel, I think, in terms of how things are, are mobilized. That said, I, I don't think they have a problem with the term qabza. Qabza in, in, uh, in Hashnagar implies possession. Do you have possession of the land or not? Um, although some people do call the MKP a qabza mafia, right? Like, th- that, like these, this is a land mafia that is just using force and power to take over and keep land, which to be fair is exactly what they were doing. Uh, but the fact that they could use force and power to take over and hold on to land, I think exposes the fact that that is what the landlords were doing all along, <laughs> right? The fact that the landlords had guns, they had armed men, they had the power of the state. Like that is how they got the land in the first place. That is how they were able to hold on to the land. And finally the tenants fought back and, and they got the land. Now, I think there's a difference between Hashnagar and, and uh, South Punjab though, which is that in Hashnagar, Uh, and in areas like Mardan and Malakand and stuff like that and Swat, there is a lot of loss. A lot of tenants do lose, but certainly in northern Hashnagar and kind of southern parts of Malakand, uh, what used to be an agency and is now district, you have a de facto land reform. You have a moment where the, from 1970 to 1972 or 1973, through sheer force of, of arms, peasants are able to hang on to lands. Um, But then what happens is that in 1973, the Pakistan People's Party becomes the government in NWFP, and they say there will be no more evictions. And as soon as the government says there's no more evictions, that forces the landlords to come to the bargaining table because they can't get their land back through the court or through, you know, they they can't use guns to get their land because the MKP is organizing the peasants with guns and they can't use the courts to get back their land because now the government has said no more evictions that forces these people to come back to the the bargaining table. Um, And that's where the landlords in many cases agree to like very low, like ridiculously, hilariously low rents, or they agree to just selling the land to the peasants at ridiculously, hilariously low rates. Um, Even to this day, you have some, you know the market rate when I was doing my research might have been like thirty thousand or forty thousand rupees per acre, but there was tenants who were paying like a thousand rupees of rent per acre, which is like nothing, right? When you when you when you think of what that land is producing and what the market rate for rent is, so there's this kind of persistence of uh, a land reform there, de facto land reform. Uh, the peasants don't have exactly ownership rights, but they might as well have ownership rights, but it doesn't seem like the movement in South Punjab is that successful.
2: Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, there was some, you know, concessionary lands given, but to some peasant leaders, you know, one peasant leader was made a manager of the estate. Estates had the managers. And so one of the Mazari landlords made the peasant leader a manager. So there was these kind of concessions and these buyouts and co-option that happened, but generally um, you did not see um, uh, peasants, you know get ownership of land and and still in some parts of the Mazari area you see that you know the chiefs still owned all the land entirely and the reason for for that kind of failure i mean there was multiple multiple reasons one is coercion the and i think i didn't mention this earlier but the chiefs inherited a coercive apparatus called the border military police which was inherited from the british which was You know, just like the British gave the chiefs land revenue collection, taxation, you know, rights, they gave them the ability to adjudicate in their jirgas, which were institutionalized by the British, but they also gave them the coercive apparatus called the police. Policing wasn't done by the British. It was done by the border military police, which was headed by and controlled by the chiefs. And this continued on in post-colonial Pakistan and was a key kind of instrument used to, you know, subdue and stifle the peasant movement um, you know so this coercion and then another thing was a lot of these landlords then realizing that the ppp and Bhutto and kar mustafa kar were simply using land reforms and in fact sometimes directly supporting these movements of tenants simply to undermine unfriendly landlords the mm. chief realized the best way we could stop this is enter the ppp and so you see you know by the mid 70s Early, all Mazaris, Lagaris, all the main chiefly families enter the PPP and become friends with Butto. And as you see that, and then, and that's the time when Kar gets kicked out from the PPP eventually. And then you see that kind of, there was a a, 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 a tactical, strategic kind of alliance between the government and these tenants that stops. Um, and then you see peasants getting arrested and and the rest and the so forth. So that was,
0: yeah. I think that's fascinating because th- there was also a tactical alliance between the Pakistan People's Party and the MKP in Hashnagar, uh, insofar as NAP was in power in in, in NWFP, the National Awami Party was in power in NWFP. As soon as that ends in 1973, the tacit alliance between the MKP and PPP is over. The peasants uh, get their lands, they start supporting the PPP, and the PPP government starts cracking down on the MKP there as well. So we see how politics comes to resolve these uh, two different situations in two different ways, but in one way, the tenants by and large get lands, at least in certain areas. And in the other, by and large, they don't get lands. Um, and I think that, uh, that kind of brings to an end of sorts to th- that kind of wave of peasant movements of the, of the 1970s. Um, I think by 1976, 1977, the MKP, uh you know falls apart partly because of some of the they, they don't know how to handle the fact that the peasants have been demobilized in Hashnagar and that the peasants are are kind of demobilized in uh in South Punjab and other parts of Pakistan. There's a military coup in 1977 with Ziaul Haq that they don't uh really know how to respond to that. Um and some of them like Inti'az Alam, Sher Ali Bacha, move further toward uh ethno-nationalistic politics, uh politics uh, Avzal Bangash moves closer to the Soviet Union and and the Afghan government, which by 1979 is also under communists, and Major Ishaq in Punjab is kind of trying to do his own thing to, to sustain the MKP in one way, Avzal Bangash sustaining the MKP in another way. These are, by the way, major leaders of the MKP. And that kind of brings that sequence sort of to a close. Um, uh I think we've uh, we've covered a lot of history. Uh, we've left a lot of details out. So it's a huge level of abstraction, but uh, right from from kind of colonial times to the peasant movements of the 1970s, we've touched on some of these aspects. And uh, if you're speaking to uh, a lot of students in, in my, my classes, when they think about Pakistan now, they don't really see much hope in terms of change, right? Maybe there was an idea that uh, PTI government would bring change, and, and many people are still holding out hope, but it doesn't seem like that dramatic. Uh, and when we talk about these things like peasant movements in Pakistan or peasant movements in other parts of the world, they offer like, but how? how, how what would, what should we take away from, from the discussion we just had in terms of what it might mean for social change or for organizing or for what does it mean for engaging and, and thinking about Pakistan?
1: I mean, one thing to consider, you know, as students in political economy, is to I mean one way I mean many if you read Dawn or the news or listen to uh, whatever television stations uh, or even your family you know there's a sense that it's those who are powerful who determine everything it's what capital determines uh, the state of affairs you know it's what uh, Imran Khan says or the PTI or whatever political parties in power it says and determines what the situation is uh i mean i think history also tells us that you know when people come together who have a uh, a sense of uh wanting change can make change happen and i think it's also one thing to always remember that things are always contested mm-hmm. it is not as if we all come together and we're cooperating even those who uh i mean if the Pakistani economy is on the backs of workers, on the backs of peasants, uh, on the backs of uh, household uh, labor, you know, that's not something that everyone is doing willingly. I mean, there's a sense of willingness that people are engaged in doing that. But there's also a sense that uh, there's also something inherent in all that that it was always in some sort of contradiction. There's some sort of contestation or, and so there's always the possibility that if people come together, that, you know, the balance of power could be shifted. And I think there's maybe if we look at history, it's not very hopeful, but I think there are moments that we can still say that, you know, okay, we did break away from formal independence from the British uh, it's maybe not the character that the Gadda party or uh, others had hoped for. Uh, there wasn't the question maybe of land, dis- land redistribution, but let's say some degree of autonomy was possible. And the, the process of decolonization itself, I mean, we can't just see that this was something which was led by the Muslim League. Uh, I think there's something there's something to argue that, If there wasn't uh, worker and peasant led struggles during the colonial period, I don't think we would have Muslim League leading a new Pakistan. Mm. I think there was something about uh, there was a fear among many landlords that, uh, you know, I don't think, you know, these landlords who led Pakistan in 1947 really wanted a Pakistan. I don't think they really wanted uh, having a nation state. These were the same people who were leading the Unionist Party prior to uh, 1947. So they were pretty, they're doing pretty well with the British. And so that wasn't something, and I think it was in some ways, having a Pakistani state where landlords were in power was a compromise. And it was, you know, landlords were taking the tune of a nation state and having that kind of politics in a certain situation. Now, that's all to say that, you know, it was these small movements of sharecroppers who had nothing. I mean, there was a movement of those who were working in factories who really shifted the dialogue of another possibility, something which is, let's say, something more progressive uh, for society. And I think maybe we could take, you know, our uh, some inspiration from those moments that you know things are not inevitable or given, and there are always possibilities waiting in the horizon. Yeah, thanks for that, uh, Shazab.
2: Yeah, people in Pakistan, especially kind of you know students in colleges, they think that you know I'm going um, to get an education, and that's I'm going to get an education and you know, educated people are the ones who are going to change Pakistan. The Imran Khan people, the people who go to Oxford, those are the people, you know, who are going to bring the visions. But, you know, this discussion and this history shows that it's, in fact, you know, a lot of, you know, or historically, a lot of ordinary peasants, workers who didn't go to Oxford, who didn't have this education, who had, but who were very worldly, who connected with know went to the Soviet Union, connected with, you know, Maoist philosophy, who actually wanted to? Who actually kind of really, um, you know, had ideas that were really, really far-reaching, more far-reaching than many of the so-called educated people were. A lot of these chiefly families, they went to Oxford and they maintained the status quo. They got the mm-hmm. education and used that to maintain the status quo. Whereas it was the peasants who were actually going to really radically, you know, upset the re- and uh, rearrange the way in which, you know, India, colonial India, post-colonial Pakistan would be organized. So much so, in fact, I mean, the state, Pakistani state, and even the colonial state were very scared of the fact of what these people could do. You know, I spent the summer, when I was doing field work, um, I spent a time two years ago in the special branch of the Pakistan, of the Punjab police, and which has their surveillance files. And you see throughout the 60s and 70s, and even before that, they have their colonial records. They're very scared not of these landlords, they're scared of, the peasants and the workers and what they're doing and how they're thinking and how they're in touch with the Soviet Union and what the Soviet Union say, how they're getting in touch with people from China, how Maulana Bashani is going to China and learning from the Chinese. They're scared of these ordinary peasants and their travels and they're tracking them of what they're doing. And so, yeah, I mean, I think this history and this, this kind of, you know, This exploration shows that, you know, the radical ideas and some of the far-reaching ideas and the transformative ideas and the really threatening ideas that will really upset the status quo don't come from above but come from ordinary people and can come and have always come from ordinary working and peasant folks.